0: beginning at verse 9 is where we're going to begin to read. Father, we do pray that you would bless this time as we study your word. And Lord, what an incredible uh, letter that was written to not just the Corinthian Christians 2,000 years ago, but this letter is for us. And and Lord, we want to be attentive this morning. We want to be free from distractions. We want to open our ears and, and our hearts to you right now and allow the word of God to pierce our hearts and to Lord, touch our hearts in a very real and deep way. And Lord, I pray that this morning that we would see very clearly as Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he writes about what motivated him to continue in living for Christ and serving Christ, even in the difficulties that he was going through. And Lord, may it motivate us and stir our hearts this morning. So we do give you this time in the study of your word. We, we look forward to, after the study, coming to the communion table and, and Lord, just uh, taking of the elements and being reminded of what Jesus Christ did for us and going to the cross and, and uh, holding those elements. And, and, Lord, we have a very special time, so we want to give attention to you fully right now. Just put away the distractions of last week and what's coming up this week. And Lord, just magnify you and study about your word that you've given to us and, and you personally, your provision. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if you've been with us in our study of Second Corinthians, the apostle has been talking very openly about his ministry there to the Christians at Corinth and in this letter that he's written to them. And he has indicated to them, again, he's reminded them that he had gone through much difficulties and, and troubles and persecution for the sake of the ministry. But in the difficulties, and Paul really went through some extreme difficulties and persecutions, the apostle says in that, the light and the glory of Christ is made manifest through us. And as we closed chapter four last week, he wrote that therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. In other words, we're really taking a beating, literally, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And, and these afflictions, these difficulties that we're going through are light and only for a moment when you compare it to the glory of eternity, in comparison to, to heaven. And as we began to move into chapter 5 last week, we saw that Paul continued this discussion on heaven. And Paul gives us truth and information of what is awaiting for us in heaven and that is uh he speaks about the resurrection he tells us about the new heavenly body a new building from god a house that is made without hands, eternal in the heavens, that is awaiting us. And it's a marvelous truth that is proclaimed to us in God's word, that we are going to get new heavenly bodies that will not wear out like our earthly bodies, which groan as, as we get older, as they begin to wear out on this side of eternity. And he says, but we earnestly desire to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And in light of that, Paul continues in this free-flowing discussion about heaven, and he's going to point out to us as believers that heaven is that motivating factor that keeps us living to please the Lord and to be engaged in ministry, To, to have a life that the priority is to please Christ, live for Christ, and to serve Christ. It was Warren Wordsby that said that heaven is not just a destination, but it's a motivation as well. And that's what we're gonna see in the rest of this chapter. We're gonna see that Paul will give us three motivational factors that are very much of a key to keep us living in a way that pleases the Lord, and to help us in our service to continue serving the Lord in our lives. So Paul was able, as we know, to continue his ministry. He was able to press forward because he understood these truths that we're going to see this morning. And I think it's going to be a great encouragement to us as we look at these truths that will motivate us to continue to live for the Lord. Now you recall that we left off last time at verse 9. Let's read it again in 2nd Corinthians chapter five, that he writes, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. So we make it our aim to live in a way that pleases the Lord. And Paul has been talking about that we came, as he talks about his ministry, that when we came to you here in Corinth, we didn't come preaching ourselves, we didn't come exalting ourselves, but we were bond servants. We came to serve you and to be helpers of your joy, not to rule over you. And this is how we please the Lord in our service to him, as we read in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust we are well known in your conscience. And so Paul talking about heaven to the believers there at Corinth. He says we are going to, to get those new heavenly bodies, and when we pass from, from these bodies to the eternal glory of heaven, we are not only going to get new heavenly bodies in what is known as the resurrection, but also Paul gives us some more information. And he tells us that as believers, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we have done, good or bad, and we persuade men because we know, therefore, the terror of the Lord, or that is the fear of the Lord. Now, many people read verses 10 and 11 that we just read and there can be a lot of misunderstanding we need to to look at this carefully and understand that the word judgment seat here in verse 10 is the single greek word that means bima it's the bima seat of christ it is a reference to the reward stand or the platform, the Bema reward seat. The Corinthians would know exactly what Paul was talking about because of the ancient Olympic games that took place 2,000 years ago in Athens. And there is Corinth, not far from Athens, only a few miles from uh, that city. And they would understand what paul was talking about that that the bema reward seat was that place that platform where those athletes they would receive the reward for winning their race or winning their event and so the athletes would come up to the bema reward seat they would receive the reward or their crown and we're going to see that this summer something very similar aren't we in the olympic games that will take place in london and it's something that most of us, that we watch, and, and we love to watch those events, and particularly with certain individuals that represent our country with interests, and when they get up on that platform, and they get the medal, and, and they play the national anthem, it's a very special time, not only for them, certainly, but but for us who are watching. And so that's what Paul is referring to, the Bema reward seat, receiving the rewards of their crown. It's not to be disqualified, it's not to be found fault with or or punished, but to be given rewards. And that is important for us to understand that because people and even Christians will look at these verses and they'll think, well, what's being said here? Is it being said that we're going to be saved based on our works, whether I was good or bad? There are those who who don't understand fully the gospel, that they think, well, uh, I'm going to be saved according to my works. I'm going to stand, and, and if I was good, then I'll make it to heaven. And there are many people many that perhaps you know personally those at work and family members and neighbors that if you ask many people if you were to get into heaven how is it that you get to heaven if god was to ask you when when you pass on and and pass through this life that if god was to ask you why should i let you into heaven you'll get all kinds of answers from people and a lot of times it is because i was a good person or I, I went to church, or I belonged to a church, or I, or I gave in the community, I was a good parent, whatever it might be. And they will look at people, look at these verses, and they will think in that kind of way, that, that I'll be judged for eternity according to good works. But Paul's not referring to that. And again, we need to follow the flow of the apostle, you believers. When your earthly tent wears out, you're going to get a new heavenly body, a body that will last forever. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And therefore, we make it our aim to please the Lord with our lives. Because the first motivational factor for you who like to jot down notes: Number one, we will stand before the bema reward seat of Christ and receive rewards for our service to Him and for Him. It is not to be judged for our sins. Just so that we are clear on this, that judgment was already put upon Jesus when he died on the cross. He took the penalty and the punishment and the wrath of God upon himself for us when he died on the cross of Calvary. That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We are not saved by our works. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves to earn or merit eternal life. That's one of the things about other religions and the cults. They will emphasize, this is what you have to do to be saved. And only Christianity says, this is what he did. And that's what our salvation is based on. As you accept the work of the cross, Jesus' death on the cross for my sins. And then I come and I recognize that I am a sinner and I need the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And as we surrender our hearts to him, we are we're going to see in this chapter become a new creation in Christ. We're born again by the Spirit of God. We become a child of God. So here in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we're not talking about salvation. We need to understand that, and it's important for us to understand that. This is not the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20 that we'll be looking at next time in our study of the book of Revelation where the unrighteous dead, those who have rejected Jesus as their Lord and Savior, will be judged and sentenced to outer darkness. And that will take place at the end of the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. But we as believers, we are going to stand before the Bema reward seat of Christ. And we will be rewarded for the works that we did for Christ what we have done for him, our motivation for doing them. This is the first motivation of Paul that kept him living a life pleasing to God, living a life of service to God. Hey, realize you Christians at Corinth and for us here at Calvary Chapel, for all of us, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is one of the reasons why we make it our aim to please God is what he is saying. Now, you might recall when Paul was writing what we have in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said that our foundation is in Jesus Christ. Our belief is in him. And that we're building on that foundation. And we're building with either wood, hay, or straw, or we're building with gold, silver, and precious stones. And all of our works are going to be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work and if anyone's work which he has built on it, gold, silver, precious stones, he will receive a reward, Paul writes there in that chapter of 1 Corinthians. And if anyone's work is burned, wood, hay, and stubble, he will suffer loss, that is, he won't be rewarded for that, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So it's important for us to know that Paul here again Not speaking about salvation, he says, you yourself will be saved as through fire. But the things that we did, was it pleasing to the Lord? Did it bring glory and honor to Him? What was our motivation for doing those things for Christ? And we're going to be judged as through fire, and it will be revealed on that day when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says, knowing therefore the terror or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. What does paul mean by that the message is not watch out god is going to consume you with fire with a lightning bolt but rather we know that when we stand before the lord and recall that we saw last week in in revelation chapter 19 when We saw the second coming of Jesus Christ, that it was described that Jesus with those eyes of flames. It it was described to us as well in Revelation chapter 1 as as John saw a vision of Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and those eyes of fire, those eyes of love, are going to look at you and me on that day. And all that I've done in the so-called name of service in ministry to the Lord and for the Lord, all that that I've done as I stand before him, will pass through the fire and all of the wood and all of the hay and all of the stubble. All I did with the wrong motive or with a rotten attitude or I just wanted to exalt myself. Hey, it's, it's wood, it's hay and it's stubble and it's going to burn up and the gold and the silver and the precious stone. What I did for the Lord because of my love for him, desiring to bring glory and honor to him. That which is left will be used to fashion that crown. That reward will be given to me, not a crown that I can wear proudly in heaven, but that I might cast it at his feet like the four and the 20 elders did in that heavenly scene of chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. And to say, as they said, that you, Lord, are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Now understand the fear of the Lord. That when we stand before him and we look into those eyes of fire, uh, fear will fill our hearts, verse 11. But what kind of fear? Understand this. It's not being afraid of him. It's not being in terror of him. And many Christians, when they read in the Bible the fear of the Lord, they think that it's a a term that that God is going to, to punish me. He's going to consume me. He's going to get me. And that's not what's being talked about here at all. That's not the proper perspective of the fear of the Lord. Solomon, he writes, the beginning of wisdom is what? Is the fear of the Lord. It is the beginning of knowledge. So what is the fear of the Lord? It's not being afraid of God that He's going to hurt me and, and get me and consume me, but rather, it is me being afraid of hurting Him. is really what it is. For example, I fear my wife, Sue. It's not that. I'm afraid that she's going to deck me when I go home. But you see, having the fear of my wife, when you love and you desire to please someone, you don't want to do anything that will cause grief to them. When you love somebody, you don't want to do anything that will hurt them or disappoint them or or cause grief to them. The, The fear of the Lord is not that I'm afraid of you and terror of you, but Lord, I reverence you. I have such a deep reverence and respect and awe and wonder of you and love for you that I don't want to do anything that will hurt you or disappoint you or bring grief to you, Lord, through my sin or carnal activities, my ignoring you or doing my own thing or going my own way. I've had people say to me, well, I really don't care about rewards or even that it's selfish to to want to serve so that you can get rewards. I don't care about rewards. But I guarantee you this because God's word shows it very clearly that when you get to heaven you will care. And that's why Paul is writing about this so that we can know That's why Jesus talked about it quite extensively. And in this fear of the Lord and standing before the Lord on that day, I know that I want to be able to have more to give to you, Lord, on that day, as my work passes through the fire. That my life was gold and silver and precious stones rather than building my life on wood, hay, and stubble because I know that it reflects how I live to please you, Lord, Because I fear you, Lord. I reverence you. And I love you, Lord. In light of how good and holy and majestic you are, Lord. What you did for me on Calvary. And Paul says, it's knowing this fear of the Lord we persuade men. Understanding the reality that you, that me, are going to stand before the line of the tribe of Judah. And he's not going to growl at you begin to rip into you because your sin is forgiven and it's forgotten. But you will see him in his love. And at that moment, what my hope and what my prayer for all of us is that none of us would think that, wow, why did I waste so much time pursuing my own thing, saying I didn't have time to serve you, Lord, I didn't really desire to live for you because I was so distracted by the things of the world or pursuing the, the things of the world. I was so busy or, or whatever it might have been. And, and you just realize the reality of the Lord on that day and eternity that we would say this day, from this day forward, the priority is you, Lord, in my life and living for you and serving you and pleasing you with my life. Whatever that might mean for you, wherever God has placed you. You see, the apostle understood this. And he understood that this isn't just theology, but this is real and it motivates us to live a life that is pleasing to God. So I persuade man is what he says because heaven is right around the corner and we will give an account of our lives, our time, our energy, it's gonna happen. And I pray that none of us would think, oh no, oh no, I don't really have anything to show. Again, we're not going to be judged for our sins, that's already been taken care of. But at that time, you will desperately desire to have the gold and the silver and the precious stones to present to him that he would reward you. So can I ask us all a question this morning? Do you really believe this? Do you really believe this in your heart? Then live for him and please him and make him the priority. Store up your treasures in heaven. When he comes back, as we're going to see in the book of Revelation, he comes back with his reward to give to those who are his servants who have lived for him. Build your life on the gold and silver and precious stones of the kingdom. He continues in verse 12, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. So the problem there with the Christians at Corinth is they were attracted and they liked those who really gloried in appearance and not in heart. They would look down at Paul because his glory was not in his appearance but he had a heart after God. They thought because Paul went through such difficulties and persecutions that that made him less of an apostle and a man of God. And by telling the Corinthian Christians how God was working in his struggles and his trials, Paul is giving them something to answer those who thought that way. It is so easy for us, especially in our day in our society, to glory in appearance. We look at those of hollywood we look at those who have fame and particularly our young people and they see the money and the fame and the prestige that they have and and they think wow that would be great that would be wonderful and and they glory in those things they focus on the outward any of us can do that but we need to remember that god sees the heart and that's something that we learn as we see saul the king there in first samuel Saul was the first king of Israel. He was rejected of God. And so Samuel the prophet was told to go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, and there you're going to anoint the new king of Israel. And so Samuel went, and when he went to the home of Jesse, Jesse presented his eldest son, Eliab. He was tall, he was handsome, he was strong, he seemed so together. And the prophet Samuel said, surely this is the Lord's anointed that stands before me. And the Lord spoke to Samuel at that time in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He said, Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at his physical status because i have refused him for the lord does not see as a man sees for man looks at the outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart and we can be so easily impressed by a person's image or their status or their appearance that we miss their substance and what's in their hearts it would be the youngest of jesse's sons you know who was out with the sheep and the lord told samuel you arise and go to anoint him For he's the one, and that would be, of course, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man that the scripture says had a heart after God. He would be the greatest king that Israel ever had. And then Paul gives the second reason, this second motivation for service, the first knowing that we're going to all stand before the Bema reward seat of Christ, and and, and we want not to be found empty-handed when we stand before our Lord. Then secondly, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So Paul telling us the second motivation which gave Paul reason to continue on in ministry, to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord, even under the extreme difficult situations, and that is the love of Christ. The love of Christ, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Jesus had for him. And I think this is very important. This is the the greatest foundation, primary reason for ministry, for wanting to give something to others because Jesus gave his life for us. He died for all. He died for me. Sometimes when we think about and when we read this, Jesus dying on the cross, we think, yeah, he died for all. He died for humanity generally. Yes, he did, true, he died for all. But remember that he died for you individually, personally, specifically. That's how much he loves you. He knew that you specifically needed to be saved. And he took all of your sins upon himself. As he hung on that cross, he took the punishment that you deserve." He died in place of you. Don't fail to see and apply the work that he did for you personally. The sufferings that he endured for you because of his unconditional love for you. He says the apostle in verse 15, because he died for us, we should not live for ourselves, but to live for him. I serve the Lord because of his love for me. And I can't help but respond out of love for him. I don't serve to exalt self or to focus on self or to get people to look at self, but rather seeing the love of Christ causes me to what? Die to self. To live for him who died for me. The one who desires for me to spend eternity with him. Sometimes I'll have people come say to me, well, I don't know if God loves me anymore. I question God's love. I immediately take them to the cross of Calvary where they can see clearly his love for us and for them specifically. As he was there shedding his blood, dying for them, for you, for me, I see that he had a love for me then. He loves me now. And that constrains me and motivates me to live a life for him, to walk with him, to do service for him. Now, if I was to ask you, when you desire to serve the Lord, why do you want to serve the Lord? I've had people come to me often in in the times that I've years of ministry and they will say, I I want to serve the Lord, or I've had people say that I feel uh, that I want to be in full-time ministry. And, And I'll begin to probe. I'll begin to ask them some questions. And sometimes I'll ask them, why do you want to be in ministry? It's interesting the different answers you'll get. Well, I want to help people. Well, that's good. That's fine. Or I want to use my talents. I've even had a few tell me, not many, but a few tell me, well, I I want to be in full-time ministry because I think it'd be a good career choice. Others serve in ministry because they may not express it, but they want to be noticed. They want to be exalted. There can be all kinds of reasons why people want to serve the Lord. Some of them are really good reasons. But is it of the love of Christ and what he did for me in dying for my sins? As I look at him on that cross and his love for me. And you see, if that is not the foundational motivational reason why you engage yourself in service to him, then you will find yourself getting frustrated, you will find yourself getting irritated, you'll be agitated. And you will struggle and you will strain and eventually you'll quit. You see, they call it ministry burnout. You'll start out like a shooting star burning brightly, and eventually you'll burn out. I used to get a few years ago a ministry magazine, and and it was for pastors and their families. And it was supposed to encourage us and build us up. But I found that as I read it, this particular magazine, month after month, it ended up being discouraging. Because it had all these, you know, stories about how pastors quit the ministry and all the pain and the struggles, and it was so discouraging, I had to stop getting it. And I remember one issue had some statistics, and the article stated that the average pastor stays at a church for two and a half years before moving on. Many times because it just was not working out, or being pressured by their board, or being overwhelmed by the difficulties. A majority of ministers, pastors, said they have experienced ministry burnout. Eighty percent of pastors' wives said that the church actually had a negative impact on their family. You see, it's just not full-time ministers that are affected, but we're all called to ministry. And I have seen over the years, and I've known many that have turned away from the call of God in their lives because they were frustrated or tired or burned out. But yet, when you look at Paul, at his life, and his ministry, and the difficulties, and the persecutions that that he went through, he was stoned and left for dead. I don't know any pastors personally that have been stoned and left for dead. I, I don't. I have known some over in Africa have gone through tremendous persecution but here's Paul the Apostle kicked and flogged and beaten and bitten and he went through tremendous trials and tribulations yet you never hear Paul talking about you know ministry burnout in those terms matter of fact he talks about finishing his race with joy and at the end of his life he writes to Timothy I have fought the good fight I have finished the race I have kept the faith finally there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. So how was the apostle able to do that? Because he was motivated rightly. He knew of the love of the Lord, that he died for me and rose again. And I am now set free. And I have experienced his incredible love and his incredible grace. And now I live for him. It is the love of Christ that keeps me from giving up and burning out Now, if you want to talk about burnout, the classic story and example of burnout, Leviticus chapter 10. The children of Israel had stood before the tabernacle as the priests were being presented. It was an exciting day. God had sent down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice that was there at the altar. When the people saw that, they gave a great shout, They fell on their faces, and two of Aaron's sons, who were the priests, Nabat and Abihu, they saw this, they got excited, they grabbed their censers, they lit their censers, they were so thrilled, they were excited to be a part of this happening, and they took their censers, they ran into the Holy of Holies. Many of you, you know what happened as you've read that chapter. What happened is fire came down from heaven, a lightning bolt, and consumed them, burnt them up. Talk about being burnt out in ministry. They were literally. Because Leviticus chapter 10 tells us that they offered strange fire, that is profane fire, before the Lord. Therefore the Lord consumed them. So what was the profane fire? The Lord, as you read the book of Leviticus very carefully, has specifically said that the fire that was to be used in the tabernacle worship was to be lit only from the altar, the bronze altar, where the sacrifices were made. The altar which the Lord had ignited previously in this gathering of Israel. The altar which speaks of and points to Calvary, where our Lord, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed for us. You see, that is the only legitimate fire that will, keep you from, that will keep you burning brightly in the ministry, serving perpetually, continually, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. When you remember how Jesus hung on the cross for you, the price that he paid for you individually because of his love for you, So Paul writes, it is the love of Christ that constrains me. It is his love for me that motivates me. But what happens so often times is people offer strange fire when they're doing ministry, when they're serving the Lord. What what I mean by that is they can say, oh, look at all the people. I want to be a part of this holy happening. Or I want to see people be helped and happy or deep down inside they want to be noticed or recognized. I want to be the deacon of the month and have my picture out in the foyer area. Well I got talents and abilities and I want to use them. All these things that people will come and do ministry. And and they will come and they will say well you know I, I, I want to see people saved. That's a good reason. But what happens if you're given a ministry like Jeremiah? Minister for 40 years without a single convert. Well, I wanna be a teacher. I, I, I believe that I'm a good teacher. I have lots to share. What are you gonna do when people analyze and scrutinize and criticize your teaching? Not that that's ever happened to me. <laughs> Not that any of you have ever gone home after services for lunch and then you had roast pastor for lunch. Actually I'm very appreciative of your guys' encouragement. But do you understand what I'm saying? You wanna be a part of the happening thing? What happens when it's an unhappening thing? What happens when no one comes and thanks you for teaching the children? What happens when somebody becomes critical of the talents that you're using or the teaching that you're giving? You see, the motivation is, Lord, you died for me, and you've called me to this, and I live for you. And I live for you because of your love for me. And I can't help but just serve you and love you. And anything else is strange fire. And as you come, and your motivation is my love for Jesus Christ because of his love for me, that's when you're going to minister with joy, and that's when you're going to minister with longevity. Otherwise, you're going to burn out you're just going to burn out. Quickly, verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him, thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Knows Paul, as he writes here, if anyone is in Christ, that means anyone. Anyone. It doesn't matter what race, nationality, what language, what level of intelligence. Anyone... Can be a new creation in Jesus Christ. When we come to Christ, we are not just forgiven, but we are changed. A new creation is something that only God can do. It is not just turning over a new leaf or getting your act together. It is a gift from God that we receive through faith in Him. Being a new creation does not mean that we are perfect. We are perfectly forgiven. But we are changed, and we are being changed from glory to greater glory, as we've already covered in this book. The old things have passed away the way that I used to think. I don't go to the old hangouts. I don't participate in the old things that I did that were full of carnality and and sin. I'm no longer identified with the world, but with the kingdom of God. Being a new creation in Christ is not something God does for us. It is something he does in us. So we are to put off the old man, as Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. We are to put on the new man, which is created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. This is a promise for anyone who is in Christ. Not a promise for those who are into themselves, or just into religion, or into programs. This is for those in Christ. And then Paul gives us the third motivational reason why he continued in the ministry and in a life of service to the Lord. He was called to, verse 18 to the end of the chapter now all things are of god who has reconciled us to himself through jesus christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation that is that god was in christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation now then we are ambassadors for christ as though so, through god we're pleased, pleading through us we implore you on christ's behalf be reconciled to god For he made him who knew no sin to be sent for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The third reason that Paul was motivated to continue in a life of service for the Lord and pleasing the Lord because he knew that he was an ambassador for the Lord. He was given the ministry of reconciliation. God has reconciled us to himself. We did not reconcile ourselves to him. Again, that's what makes Christianity so unique. All other religions say this is what you have to do to be reconciled to God. Only Christianity uniquely says that you were reconciled to God because of what he did, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary. And as ambassadors for Christ, we have the ministry of reconciliation. That is, we get to tell others that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And it it comes through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, his provision of forgiveness and salvation, and right relationship with the Father. And it comes by faith and belief in him. And as you surrender your heart, you're a new creation, and you'll be reconciled to the Father. And you then become his ambassador. Now, we know that when we become an ambassador, an ambassador does not speak to please his audience. He or she does not speak on their own authority, their own opinions, their own demands. We simply say what has been commissioned to say. But an ambassador is more than a messenger. He and she is a representative of the honor and the reputation of who you are representing. And Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Peter says that we're pilgrims and strangers down here in this life. We have the privilege to be his ambassadors with a very important message to give, a message of reconciliation, a work of God that, that will save a dying world and make you a new creation, that will make you righteous through him we are his ambassadors. We're getting close to graduation, we got a lot of young people that are graduating, including my son. And You know, you talk to them about what's the Lord putting on your heart and what do you wanna do in the future? and. And and it's exciting to to hear, and and some of them just praying about it, and we're praying for them. And I think back about when I was young, and I thought, you know, if I was young again, what would I want to do in in life? What is it that I would want to do? What would be cool? And I think what would be neat is to be a professional fishing guide, you know? That would be one thing that would be cool. I would enjoy that. Another thing I thought about would be really neat to be archaeologists in Israel, just doing some diggings and finding some important biblical artifacts or something. Uh, I remember when I was young, when Sue and I first got married, I applied for a job tagging grizzly bears in Yellowstone for six months. And Sue said, no, you're not going to do that. (laughs) But I think it would be cool to do that. God has been so good because what I get to do, you get to do it too is the greatest thing, and that is we have the ministry of reconciliation. And we are his ambassadors. And I pray that this week, especially this week, during this Easter week, that you would represent him well. And you would tell people about Jesus. There's nothing more joyous or glorious than that. Telling people about Jesus Christ and him crucified father we thank you for this time that we've had together we thank you for this incredible incredible chapter and lord i pray that we would be motivated to live for you because of what jesus christ did for us and what a an appropriate and fitting time for us to come to the communion table as we hold those elements where we remember what jesus christ did for us so i pray that that lord just as we talk about this that we would really have this that would take place right now in our hearts of just remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us. But Lord, also as we come this morning, Lord, I want to give opportunity for anyone who has not become a new creation in Christ to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. You've heard the gospel this morning through the teaching of the word that Jesus is your only salvation and if you've never embraced Jesus Christ we want to give you opportunity because he is the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through him there's no other name under heaven which a man or woman must be saved it's the name of Jesus as you recognize that you are a sinner that needs forgiveness and Jesus the Savior of the world came and died for you because of his love for you and if there's anyone here in this sanctuary or out in the coffee shop or listening to this on the radio, that if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, he's knocking on the door of your heart right now by the Holy Spirit, desiring for you to open up your heart to him, knowing that today is the day of salvation, to open up your heart and say, yes, Jesus, to salvation, because heaven is real. That's what we learned from this chapter that heaven is real. And it comes only through belief and faith in Jesus Christ. You pray where you're sitting, Jesus, come into my heart and be my personal Lord and Savior, for I have sinned and I confess that. And I come to you and I believe that Jesus, that you're the Son of God who died on Calvary's cross for me and you were put into a grave and you rose again. And I come and I surrender my heart to you right now. I come with belief in my heart and who you are and what you've done for me. And thank you for dying for me and your love for me and for your forgiveness. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name.